All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Car Thoughts with David. I'm your host, as always, David Calvert, and I am again joined by Rob Statham, uh, wine sommelier, beer sommelier, uh, international expert on all things uh, wine and beer. And uh, today we are going to be uh, going on the extension of International Women's Day and uh, Women His- Women's History Month by talking about the importance of women in wine throughout history. So, Rob, if you'd like to introduce yourself, and we will uh, we'll get started, man. Well, sure. Hi, David. Uh, thanks for having me back. Of course, as you know, I'm uh, the owner of a business called The Drunken Grape, and I present uh, do some events locally here in Ottawa, as well as I present uh, some vlogs and video branding and marketing, a lot on wine and beer-related topics. And um, one of these things that really resonates me with me is women and wine. I mean, we we just passed, as you said, International Women's Day on March 8th. And it's funny because it is a segment on uh, Madame Vauve Clicon, who's actually a central focal point on this discussion today. Uh, Such an amazing figure in the world of wine. uh, Just had such a huge impact. And you got to remember, she came along in a European society, even though she was part of high society, women were really kind of considered second class in so many ways, especially in the uh, affairs of business and politics of the day, which she undoubtedly got heavily woven into. And such a, an impactful and brilliant character in the world of wine. So it's exciting to cover that as well as um, just touching on a brief history of wine. Um, wine has uh, always been heavily male dominated and a lot of that the reasoning behind that was because the trade of wine itself brought so much profitability throughout history and it wasn't deemed a cooking activity it was more involved than say brewing brewing was often deemed as a home activity or cooking activity to nourish families if it wasn't on a commercial scale and we all know that women were in charge of that activity and why brewing uh, was largely dominated by women a bit of the opposite direction for sure in the world of wine. So we're going to cover a little bit of that and just talk about some of the awesome women today in wine. My good friend, Jennifer uh, Simonetti Bryan, for instance, a master of wine that I have a good relationship on LinkedIn. He's done some tremendous things. We'll talk a little bit about the great Yancis Robinson, the first, I believe, Claudia Harris, uh, the first female master of wine and some of the trailblazers in the modern age. None of this would have happened without Vauve Clicquot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She had such a huge influence at a time when uh, Napoleon was going on. Right. So uh, obviously the laws were changing so much. (laughs) But if we go and delve into it and the history of it, you know, and uh, no other business in the history of the world has had more impact on the world than the wine trade. A lot of people think, no, it's got to be the gold trade. Sure. Gold was the monetary standard and benchmark. And really is, in a lot of ways, true money in today's world and has had a huge influence for 5,000 years plus. But wine goes back deeper. I know beer starts a bit even earlier than that. Brewing, with the exception of ancient Egypt and certain societies that were heavily involved in brewing, the Celts, uh, the Belgae and whatnot, uh, uh, some of the German tribes, it was largely wine that dictated And if we look at it, up until modern times, women had little, next to little, if any, involvement on it. For thousands of years, it was really dominated. From the time it was discovered in ancient China and then in uh, ancient Georgia some 9,000 years ago. I mean, in Georgia, the people of the South Caucasus discovered that wild grape juice turned into wine when it was left buried throughout the winter in a shallow pit. They used these large clay casks called cavevery, which had a wooden top porous lid, and they would bury it in earth 
and let it ferment over the winter. And lo and behold, they had wine. In ancient China, uh, which wine may even predate that, it was found in 1995 by a team of archaeologists attesting winemaking had existed some 7,000 BC in uh, the Yahoo village in the Henan province of northeastern China. They found seven pots containing remnants of wild uh, grape wine. So it's amazing that it's popping up in different sections of the globe. Uh, you know, uh, in, in real terms, fairly comparable in timelines, uh, a bit earlier in China. But then this spread out, and you, you take a look at the Mediterranean, the people of the Mediterranean, Eastern Europe and the Middle East, the Persian Empire. Uh, in the ancient world, they really were prolific with the production of wine. And you think about it, it really belonged in a status symbol. It was, a, as it was a, an emblem of status. Even in ancient Egypt, uh, grapes were thought to come from the Greeks. And the pharaohs would use it or have it used during religious ceremonies. So the mass public didn't really have great access to this fantastic product in a lot of cases in certain societies for thousands of years. So it was dominated by the elite. And with the elite, um, that controlled trade and commerce, wine became a very important factor in all those discussions and all those areas of, of everyday life. Wow. Yeah, I mean, and, and uh, you, know, it, you know, like we had talked about in the previous uh, you know, episode as well. It was used in a lot of ways as a form of currency, or uh, uh, you know, a way to pay workers or to uh, to get things done because it was uh, you know so valuable and uh, you know and so uh, sought after more so than than uh, you know other things because it was something that was safe to drink, safer than water, and um, you know, and then of course, obviously, created in so many different parts of the world as well, like you were just mentioning. Oh, yeah. Like in every corner or reach of the earth pretty much had some form of remnant of winemaking attached to it. And it's funny because going back to that whole thing with water, brewing was largely uh, created uh, and used heavily because water was unsafe, while wine was also used to purify water because water was unsafe. And, you know, you had uh, eau de vie, as the French like to call it, the water of life is what they call wine. And... Um, even if you go back into the ancient times, I mean, not only was it linked to social prestige, it was linked to religiosity. And we know all of religiosity was pretty much male-dominated. Um, the only reference point I found in my research on this uh, came up in ancient Persia. The Persian legend had it that King Yamshid had a harem. And he banished one of his ladies from the harem, and she became despondent and wanted to commit suicide. And, you know, she went, in, uh, she went to the king's warehouse and where she saw a jar marked poison containing the remnants of grapes that had spoiled and were now deemed uh, undrinkable. And she drank it, this fermented beverage, and came back more delighted and a better mood and intoxicated. And uh, she took this discovery to the king who became so enamored with this new drink that not only did he accept her back into, the, into her, his harem, but he decreed that all grapes grown in uh, Persopolis. And Persopolis was the ancient capital, seat of power of the Persian world, which would now be modern-day Iran, would be devoted to winemaking. And this is the only real first record of prominence citing women's involvement in winemaking. I mean, true involvement wouldn't really occur until the very tip of the 19th century. Wow. And that was... Uh... Let's see. That was uh, with um, in France, or was that? Where, that was what, in France. That wasn't with yeah. Madame Vauvclicon. And you know, prior after that, 
you know, we, Romans were were probably had more influence in the wine world than anybody not the Roman Catholic Church as far as uh, innovation, technological development, uh, studying aspect, terroir, how the different soil types influenced different grapes, what grew best in certain types of climates. They had a brilliant understanding of this and they had such deep networks. So when the Roman Empire collapsed, it was left up to the uh, Roman Catholic Church, which of course was almost all male dominated. And it was left up first to the Benedictine and then the Cistercian monks who preserved viticulture and winemaking. And they were the only real stable social structure for nearly a thousand years. Because really the world plunged into chaos for a thousand of years. Now, over in China, things were definitely more stable until the Mongol Empire changed things for them in around uh, the 13th century. But uh, it was this dominant male order that preserved and developed grape growing and winemaking since the fall of the Roman Empire. And it was essential for mass. That was really what uh, preempted their avid study of it. And as a side shoot, the, you know, the, uh, there was always said on a slope, particularly in Burgundy, they have slope grades. So the top slope was earmarked for the cardinals and the bishops, and the archbishops. The mid-slope grade was earmarked for the pope and the inner circles of the Vatican because you had slope wash come from up above and down below and most of the nutrients are kept best mid-slope mid on any uh, hill used to produce wine or any mountainside, usually southeast facing to capture mo the most sun and the most radiancy and to capture the most nutrition throughout the day. Um, and it was from there that they had a vested interest. What was left over they would sell to preserve the monastery and of course as the Roman Catholic Church became aware of how, just how valuable the wine trade was, they immersed themselves into it. And the other aspect of that time frame, and we're talking right up to the Enlightenment period, the age of science, you know, you get into the 17th and 18th century, just the preemptive period before the Industrial Revolution. You um, have merchants and dukes and kings and counts. Well, they're all immersed in barons, and which, uh, of course, uh, Barbara Nicole Parsonet, or Madame Bovclicol, her father was a baron. That's how she got started into this whole process in the first place. They dominated the whole trade because of the amount of money in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and I know she, uh, she definitely pushed it further, uh, but it was thanks to, you know, her understanding. And I think in a lot of ways, um, you know, she had to kind of make a deal with her father-in-law where – yeah. You know, where yeah, because, she had to learn the business from the ground up and all of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, no, you're dead right. And, and um, it was also because she was widowed. So she has a very interesting history. Um, she was born five years after the house uh, of what would become uh, House Glicol, or Wolf Glicol was first founded. It was first founded by uh, Philip Glicol. Her father, um, Nicholas Possardin, was involved in the textile trade. And what would happen there was Nicholas and her soon-to-be her future father-in-law, Philippe, were neighbors in the town of Rheims, Rheims, Quebec. And sorry, Rheims, Quebec, Rheims, France. And uh, it was in the northern part of France and in the northernmost reaches of wine and viticulture production. It's also the seat of Champagne. And they had coronated various kings for centuries in Rheims, in the Cathedral of Rheims. So it was just, it happened to be a combination of things. You know, her father is a baron. Uh, the next door neighbor 
is also no, uh, for a form of noble, nobility, a very rich merchant. They're both engaged in textiles. They're, you know, they, they had an amicable relationship. They were rivals, but they weren't uh, obviously hostile towards each other. And what a lot of people did was they would, uh, in order to consolidate their empire, well, they would marry off their children with each other. And this is exactly what happened. And this is what got Madame Volklicon, uh, la grande dame of uh, Champagne, as we shall see a little later in this discussion, initially involved. Her husband um, ended up, you know, she got married at the age of 21 at, uh, in 1798. And the husband, her husband, Francois, was invited to become a full partner with his father's firm. Now, they were involved in textiles and banking as well, and they were pretty dominant, uh, pretty dominant force and pretty politically tied. And what both families did, and it was in the advice of uh, Nicholas, this was uh, Madame Bothclicot's father, he started off as a royalist. Well, right at this time, you had the French Revolution, all kinds of bloodshed and mayhem going on in France against anybody that's part uh, attached to the monarchy. Uh, you know, you have the Jacobins, you have all these different political... Uh, entities that existed, and France was plunged into a quite a dark period. Well, lo and behold, comes along Napoleon to settle it all out, and basically you now have a tyrant and a dictator in charge. So the family was shrewd enough to separate itself from the monarchy during that period, and they switched sides, and that allowed them to preserve their business empires within France and allowed them to flourish. At this time as well, Francois had uh, started to build up the wine empire. The father wasn't really interested in it. You know, they were only selling four or 5,000 bottles a year when it first started. And most of wine and champagne at that time, even though sparkling had been discovered centuries before, not in Champagne, but in, by the monks of uh, Lemieux and another section of France all of itself. So, but champagne became the most prominent of them all. And the sparkling side was actually discovered by a British scientist by the name of Christopher Murray. The French, or Christopher Merritt, the French don't like to be reminded of that. It wasn't Dom Perignon. It was actually a, a uh, scientist that added sugar to wine, left it out overnight, and noticed that it carbonated. So he found the sparkle and how, how it would sparkle. But the actual production of champagne was still very much still wine. So they were trying to sell into this saturated British market. The British market was really the first to take off. Um, the British being, uh, you know, coming into their own as the most dominant empire uh, the world had seen at that time had this massive thirst for wine. And of course, being located where they were in northern North France, the accessibility across the channel was very easy to ship wine. So it made a natural trade route. So Philip's son, uh, you know, um, Francois, this is uh, Vauvecoucault's husband, saw this as an opportunity to expand. And expand they did. So they took it from about 8,000 bottles a year to 60,000 bottles by 1804. The other part was the father had stepped away from the business in 1801. So he had retired. So what the son did was he focused a lot of the energy into wine production. And he was also the first to hire international agents. You know, he had agents transplanted in different countries to try to promote his trade and his business. And it was unique at the time because before it would be more of a direct selling model and you would just ship your product to whoever purchased it. This was definitely very shrewd because it was a business innovation in the sense that you added supply chain management into the equation now and you added relationship building and relationship selling. And it was a Swiss gentleman by the name of Louis Bond that he had employed that would become a huge asset 
to house Volkli called Pulsardin. And what had happened was everything was building and budding. They were on a really successful track until October 23rd, 1805. You know, uh, Francois, at the age of 30, died from a fever that was quite similar to typhoid. And it just stunned the family. So the father re-enters the business. He's retired. He wants to sell off all the assets. He wants nothing to do with it at first. And now uh, Nicole Barb Persardin has left a widow at the uh, tender age of 27. I believe she has a child, you know, and that's it. She's left alone. Now, this actually ironically worked out to her advantage because French law, Napoleon changed a lot of things. And a lot of things were to do with inheritance and what you could and could not do within his society. Sadly, women, you know, right up to, you know, present day in a lot of societies are still treated very poorly. And in this society, if you were married, you could not engage into politics. You couldn't engage into business. You couldn't engage into trade, finance. You weren't allowed to vote. And if you wanted to engage in anything commercial, you needed the permission of your husband or your father-in-law, or the father, I believe. It's, uh, so the whole patriarch definitely dictated what you could and could not do. Now, the interesting thing here was the massive loophole was if you're a widow, you were free to engage in business. So she just looked at this as an opportunity to take it over. I mean, she grew up, uh, her grandmother was a winemaker, tied into winemaking, and she was keenly intelligent. She really studied things. This is a very shrewd and extremely talented woman, um, a superstar in the budding. And in those days, because she was a woman, people didn't pay attention to the skill sets that she really had, except the one person that did pay attention was her father-in-law. He really realized how smart she was. And he was just blown away by how bright she was and how capable and competent. So she was able to convince him to invest equal parts into the budding wine company she took over. And he went for it because he had no other, that nobody else was there to inherit it. He had only one son and he passed away. So this is really the impetus and the start to how women broke into the wine world. And it all came from a position of prominence. Uh, she was married into a family of prominence. And then the tragedy of death actually opened a huge doorway of opportunity for her. And it's, I mean, it's amazing how those things happen where it's just like, you know, one chain reaction after another. And then next thing you know, history, you know, that, that people are talking about, you know, hundreds of years later, um, you know, and, you know, she made so many great advancements in the, uh, in the wine world as well. I mean, Edge on, on took, top of that. Oh, oh Yeah. And she took it by storm. I mean, she really ripped apart what was convention in the day and became dominant. It's just incredible what she achieved. And this wasn't without struggle. You got to remember, France was at war. Napoleon was at war with everybody. Um, It's 1805. Her husband dies. The company all of a sudden starts to struggle uh, because uh, it could no longer export anything externally. And its own internal markets were being disrupted. So you have this gamble that Philip is putting into her to make it succeed. But he was smart. And so was she. And he turned around and looked at her and said, you're gonna, you're gonna, I'm going to help you. But there's one massive stipulation here. You are going to study under one of the most prominent winemakers of the time. 
And, um, you know, she understood, she had to study under this gentleman by the name of Alexander uh, Fornell, who was a very well-known winemaker. And she apprenticed and she studied winemaking from the ground up for four years. So she worked every day and worked tirelessly. I mean, the energy in this woman was incredible. Long, long dates, days of work, very short nights of sleep, back up to hustle. All at a time where things were looking worse and worse for France as, you know, they also started to fight the Russians and uh, the Russians started to close in. The Asian war was a failure or was failing at the time. And the British were gaining steam against them, as was the rest of the continent. Things were a lot more difficult. And to try to preserve this type of business was just brutal. And, you know, she was at, by 1811, she was facing bankruptcy. I mean, they, it looked dire from a business that seven years prior was selling 60,000 bottles a year, which is a good size volume of a mid-sized business uh, that was taking off into a larger scale. It was literally disrupted, but she was just also blessed by fate. That year was a comet vintage. And it's funny because there's this, this superstition amongst winemakers, but throughout the history of wine. Hugely successful vintages and ideal growing conditions often happened the year comets appeared. So she hits this vintage in 1811 that would come to be one of the greatest, the greatest champagne vintage of the century. And with that, she also discovers a new technique to clarify the wine. So she's working on innovation at the same time in her cellar. This woman doesn't stop. And she knew that the big problem with champagne, the sparkling form of champagne, was in the second fermentation, what happens is you have yeast and sugar added to it. Well, the yeast and sugar, because champagne at first is taken, it's stopped before it all ferments completely. And you have this lower alcohol-based wine that undergoes second fermentation. You have to preserve some of the sugar value to allow a second fermentation in bottle, which also, you know, there's a high level of carbonation and a high level of pressure in these bottles. Well, it also started to really proliferate because the British, um, a few years prior to that, and I can't remember, it was in the 1700s, decided to start heating fires with coal instead of wood, which allowed, and it was by mishap because the admirals in the day had convinced parliament and the king, it was a far better idea to use coal than wood because they needed wood, wood for shipbuilding because they wanted to become the most dominant sea power. Sea power dictated everything. So they created this glass that could withstand six atmospheres of pressure within the bottle. Before that, champagne had actually been dubbed the devil's wine because it would explode in the cellar. I mean, people had to wear fencing masks and forms of armor not to get killed down there as cellar hands. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so... She comes along and figures out this technique called riddling to get rid of this murky, ugly appearance and this uh, off-putting taste in the champagne from the dead yeast. And what she discovered was if you create these racks called uh, pupitre in French, what they would do is they would take a quarter-inch turn every day and the bottle would be at a 45-degree angle. It'd sit in these racks for six to eight weeks while it would allow all this settlement to form at the neck of the bottle. The end, they'd form a, they'd stick that neck of the bottle in an icy brine, and they would disgorge it, and they would flavor the champagne by adding sugar. This is how you determine how sweet or how dry a champagne style is. In those days, champagne was uh, about twice as sweet as some of your sweetest sweet wines out on the market today. People actually really enjoyed this very sweet style of champagne, and she figured out how to clarify it and clear it by this message method called uh, riddling and disgorgement. 
Well, this ended up being a massive hit because three years later, what happened is the blockades, eventually the naval blockades started to lift. Napoleon had been defeated. He was thrown into exile in Elba. Um, the Russians still had an embargo against French trade. Uh, they were banned all French imports, but the embargo started to lift. So meanwhile, at this time, don't forget she had her agent, uh, Louis Bon. Remember, we we're talking about supply chain and supply chain management. Her husband was the first to figure out how to put agents into different countries. Well, Louis was really successful. He was partly the reason why by 1804, the company had gone from 8,000 to 60,000 bottles a year in volume. He had signed contracts with some of the richest and most powerful across certain parts of Europe, one of them in Russia. So he actually became personal and very close friends with Tsar Alexander I until his death in 1821. And what had happened was they took a gamble. So they raced ahead and were the first competitor, first of her of all the competition in the world of champagne to ship champagne to Russia after the war broke and the blockade broke and the embargo broke. So she formulated this plan with Louis Bon, and what they did was they had commissioned a ship, a Dutch frigate, effectively, a cargo ship, and in its hull they placed about ten and a half thousand bottles. And they had shipped it through. It left from Le Havre. So Le Havre is the portway from, uh, from Paris. It's, uh, I've been there, actually. I was there in the cruise line industry. I've traveled through quite a few of these places. So you're looking at somewhere else. I think it's about 40 miles away from Paris. So it was very easy to get transportation there in the day. Because don't forget, in the day, everything was horse-drawn still. You didn't have cars. You didn't have railroad. Railroad wouldn't appear for another uh, 40 to 50 years to tie everything in France and across Europe. So you relied on being close to ports. Well, she certainly had that advantage of where she was born in Rhyme. And Le Havre being close by, it was pretty reliable to get your supply and your source to a shipyard. And from there, they sailed it out. Well, the rest of the Champagne houses were caught off guard because they still deemed that it would be months, if not years, before it'd be safe to ship uh, as far as Russia at that point, because they believed the Russians still had a lot of hostility and animosity towards the French. I mean, I believe the French had killed hundreds of thousands of Russians in that attempted invasion. Uh, that ultimately backfired. You know the old saying, never start an Asian land war. But it's... Uh, <laughs> but it's uh, but really what happened here, she took a gamble. But it was very calculated because they already had relationships within the Russian courts that were building that had built up to some degree. Now, the friendship wouldn't really appear until after this initial period. But she arrives and within, it takes weeks to arrive. When she arrives there, the champagne sells out, sells out within days. And the Russians are blown away by this new clear, clean style that sweet has it's delicious on the palate. You know, you probably have you have a lot of ripe fruit notes uh, instead of the standard biscuity notes that you would find on dry champagne today, which was invented by another woman that we'll discuss a little later in this in this chat. But so you have the impetus of this happening. What happens is the next shipment comes along weeks later. This time, twelve thousand seven hundred bottles arrive, and the Tsar's brother, uh, Grand Duke Michael Pavlovich falls in love with it and proclaims it will be the only kind of wine he will drink. So the Tsar all of a sudden gets introduced to it in the courts and they fall in love with it. And sales 
boom. They just don't take off. They rock it. And with this advent of this uh, thing, and it's also important to note, she's the first one to come up with vintage champagne, which is in the best years, you create the best champagne and you age it longer in the cellars. And this is what she did. This vintage champagne, uh, by the time it was released, was three years old, which is roughly the earmark date for earmark for a to be classified vintage champagne today. And you would know that by um, the vintage champagne of uh, House Vauvecliquot is called Le Grand Dame, named after her, right? So that's the, that's the top-end champagne. I think it retails for $270, $280 a bottle, something like that. So it's very high-end stuff. It's only in the best years. You get two or three years in a decade that become vintage champagne. But this vintage just booms. And I mean, it took her from being nearly bankrupt in a war-torn country a struggling woman of the face of a champagne house. Nobody gave any hope of a woman to succeed to its most dominant force. And, and a force that, you know, is, is still known today. Like you said, I mean, those bottles are you know, pretty, pretty pricey. Oh, <laughs> and, they uh, are. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, a base, a base bottle of uh, Vove is $70 and that's just their standard champagne. 70, $72 yeah. for your standard uh, 75 CL bottle or what we call 750 milliliters. So um, it's, it's just incredible what she achieved. So steadily trade booms. And you got to remember because of this technique of riddling and disgorgement, and using these racks to clarify it, she's able to get production out weeks ahead of everyone else with this clear, clean style. And everyone's wondering how she, she did it. It would take decades for other champagne houses to figure out the exact technique. And it tells you how loyal and committed her vast workforce was to her. So this woman was also an organizational behavior genius. There's, there's no way you don't run such a tight ship with with mouths not opening up and divulging information in that age. And I'm sure people were held at knife point, gun point, tried to be paid off. I mean, there's a lot of things unwritten in history uh, that would very likely have happened in this era. Nobody capitulates. Nobody caves. You know, the, the, the secret stays guarded. So all these other champagne houses are trying to clarify it by literally taking bottles that have sediment in it and trying to find it, clarify it, filter out into other bottles. Well, the problem with that is lots. I mean, you lose the carbonation in the bottle in a lot of cases and the waste and the time. So she's able to secure and sign contracts and deliver weeks in advance of everybody else. Well, this also coincides with the, uh, the gradual boom of steam shipping in the industrial age and industrialization. I mean, her timing couldn't be better. And she just goes global. She's the first true champagne house to go global. I believe to this day, Vauvecliquot is still the second best selling champagne house in the world uh, with millions. I think it's 1.4 million cases and one, it's something insane and staggering. So globally, worldwide, it's a multi-billion dollar operation owned by uh, Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy Group. That was taken over in 1988, but none of this would have ever happened without her and her vision. And her... Uh determination to not let things like the the embargo you know come against her you know she's like we've got a relationship let's go out there and do it who cares these these guys can sit back here and be uh be scared if they want to you know yeah and she and she, she literally gets dubbed la grand dame or basically she's the queen of champagne i mean she dominates the trade for 50 years she lives to be 89 years old, almost 90. Think about that in that time frame where the average age was probably mid to late 40s for women 
and maybe if you're lucky as a man, 43, 44 were common, common ages to die and succumb to disease, illness, famine, war. I mean, uh, pestilence. There's a host of things that wipe people out. And this woman is a rock. And she almost yeah. looks like a, and almost like you would think she almost looks like a, a goddess-like figure in that society. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because anybody would be thinking, like, what's her secret? How does she live so long? You know, and I mean, so shrewd and so clever. Yeah, and, and Absolutely. Uh, Managing this global empire, by the time of her death in 1866, over three-quarters of a million bottles are shipped worldwide to Asia, the States. Uh, it's shipped all across Europe. She's right into the depths of the, Aust uh, the, Austrial, the Austrian Austria-Hungarian Empire. She's, uh, she's shipping away to the far reaches of Australia. I mean, this is, this is just a – she's a phenom. Oh, yeah. And dominant. I don't think at that time there's a male figure that even compares to what she achieved in business. And she does this without ever leaving France. She does this all through an international supply chain that her husband figured out and created that she added to greatly. So in order to have all these lifelong employees, the commitment, hiding trade secrets, um, being able to uh, outthink and outbaffle the uh, are leaving, or rather, leaving the uh, the, the uh, competition completely baffled, at an age of empire that's all dominated by men, in a field that now gets dominated by a woman is just it's masterful, and you could see the cause and effect that she would have on the world of wine and women's involvement in it. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, and and that's that's what's in, important. You know, she she made this impact. You know, to to create this industry and she used her wits. She didn't let anybody stop her. She was just kind of like, you know, doing, doing her own thing. And, and, you know, her father-in-law definitely, you know, saw in her that greatness that she could become because, you know, I mean, she seemed like she attacked every single obstacle uh, head on and didn't take no for an answer and just kept on trucking and took from what was near bankruptcy to, one of the largest wine industries or one of the largest wine houses uh, in the world. Yeah. And you know, this success, uh, it carried over. I mean, now we have Louise Pomeray. Now Louise uh, was born 42 years later in 1819 and she didn't take over her husband's champagne house to much older. I mean, Fauclicon was 27. Uh, she was, I believe 40, almost 41 at the time. And it was two years after her husband had found it. And eerily similar to Madame Vauclicon, her husband died seven years after they were married too. You know, I don't know what was in the water in France, uh, but <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's kind of a, it's a crazy similarity between the two of them. Now, this woman was very shrewd in her, out, in her own outright as well. I mean, they were heavily involved in the wool business and they were also heavily involved in the, they were getting into the champagne business, which at this point in time, she's entering it and taking over where towards the end of Madame Wolf-Glicon's life, but at the same time, Madame Wolf-Glicon is basically the face of champagne at this stage. And you've got this other woman coming up in a budding and struggling business uh, that was tough. I mean, they were largely selling to the British, and the British market was so heavily saturated. So what she did was she did a couple of things that were very intelligent. Um, she was also another organizational genius. She also understood loyalty. She's the first director one of the first company directors in French history to create retirement and healthcare funds for her employees. 
So you think about how revolutionary that is. And I really think it had to do with the maternal instinct of being a woman. She really, you know, men don't have these traits that women have. And this is when uh, we tend to be a lot more aggressive and we go for the jugular. Well, make no mistake, women can go for the jugular just as effectively, but they have a nurturing quality that this really shows up in these two women and their leadership and their fierce understanding of loyalty. So she takes over this budding champagne house. And what she does is it's in rhyme as well. She buys all these old um, limestone and chalk pits that were built in Roman times called crayers carved underneath 12 miles of the city itself. They almost look like catacombs in a way, these tunnels, this network. And in there, she discovers that the temperature is just unique in storing and cellaring champagne. That was another problem at the time because you didn't have refrigeration. So in order to cellar things properly, you needed a good consistent temperature. And she found a site that held consistent to 10 degrees Celsius, whether it was winter. Uh, it would stay warmer in the winter and it would stay cooler in the summer. And in the winter, obviously, you would, you would have fire pots and uh, oil fires and things like that help heat, heat the area to keep the temperature consistent. But this was well ahead of her competition as far as storage and stowing of it. And she could store thousands upon thousands of bottles for distribution. Now, the main innovation that Louise Pomerie came up with was she just developed Brew Champagne, the first dry style to ever hit the market. And this was just hit the market by storm. The British fell in love with it. And if you think about champagne today, we no longer relate it to the very sweet style of champagne that dominated much of the 19th century. We now relate it to the dry style, the biscuity taste uh, that you have with um, shortbread cookies that uh, come out of champagne and things like that. I think of the, the various food pairings that go with it. Um, it tends to have a puckering taste, a dryness to it. And um, this is sharply acidic. This style she created. And this just opened the door to massive success. So you have one woman going out because, well, she's just, let's face it, she's ancient and she's uh, a larger than life figure. And she's coming to the end of her career. You've got one that's just starting to hit her stride. And she holds the seat of her throne for 30 years in this great champagne house of Pummery. I mean, she's around until 70 years of age, which is quite advanced at that time as well. And you got to think for her innovation and the way she treated people, she was so loved. She's the first woman in French history to get a state funeral where 20,000 people show up and celebrate her life in the streets of Rhyme. And the French president, uh, she came from this town named uh, Chigny and her country home. And they renamed it Chenille Les Roses because of her tribute and her love for roses. Uh, this is a woman that was absolutely loved. So these two women are really responsible for the major, major breakthrough of women into the modern age. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, like you said, the, the, the state funeral, the, um, you know, having a town renamed was unheard of for for any female at that time and you know and uh you know what they did was just so phenomenal i mean to, to bring about these revolutions in the uh in the wine industry to change the way we uh drink champagne um you know because uh you know it's it's you know just mind-boggling to think of how two people made such a huge impact on champagne when you know, it's been around for so long, you know, and you've got these, you know, these really important uh, characters, both of which were women in history who, you know, just 
took it to the next level, took it beyond and to where we actually, you know, drink and enjoy it today. Absolutely. And if you take a look quickly in the history, I know our, our time's coming up a little bit in the end here. We're, we've been going on for quite a while, but to talk about women in the modern era, you can't not talk about winemaking. And the yep. first woman winemaker of the modern era was a lady by the name of Marianne Graff, who uh, is the pioneer in the modern age, widely considered being California's first female winemaker since Prohibition. She died very recently. She died at 76, and then she died on January 30th of this year um, from her complications with cancer. But she had devoted her life to wine. And, you know, she made some several precedent-setting achievements. I mean, she was the first woman to earn an oenology degree in the fermentation studies from USC Davis. And keep in mind, USC Davis is a major viticultural school worldwide. This is one of the best schools in the world uh, in Cal Southern California in 1965. And you can imagine, again, an era where it's still very heavily male-dominated. It's almost unheard of that a woman breaks through in the scene like this. She's also the first woman to serve on the board of directors of the American Society for Oenology and Viticulture. So this is a woman that had an impact across the board that really opened the floodgates. And then you have Sarah Morphew uh, Stephen, a, a British lady. I think I said her name correctly, but was becomes the first successful master of wine in 1970. Now, the master of wine is the highest trade designation in the world for wine studies. This is an extremely difficult process. I think today we only have something like 369 MWs. Um, that's the acronym for it. Uh, at that point, you have a fraction of that. You probably just have a few hundred. I mean, this ties into the trade guilds of 1363 moving up. Uh, the um, Institute of the Masters of Wine, I believe, was created in the 1950s. And from there, it becomes the benchmark, global benchmark of wine training and wine excellence as a standard. I mean, this is this is an extremely tough process to achieve, a program to achieve, or a designation rather. And she becomes the first woman. In fact, when she passed, this tells you about the time still. She got a lecture from the Institute of the Master of Wine at the time. His name is Michael Broadbent. He gave her a 25-minute lecture of how to deal with the press because nobody ever thought or heard of or thought that a woman would break through the barrier like this. So after her, the, the gates open. I mean, in the MW program, you have Yancis Robinson breaks through, for instance, a brilliant mind. She's part of the order of the British Empire. She actually provides wine advice for the wine cellar for the queen. She's uh, a world wine uh, world-class wine credit, White, writes a weekly column in the Financial Times, has her own website. She uh, contributes to the World Atlas of Wine, and this woman is incredibly clever. And... Um, you know, going into the master uh, sommelier program, the first female to pass that is Claudia Harris in 1984. And this is no easy feat. I don't know if you've seen the movie Psalm in 2012, but it kind of goes over how hard this program is to pass. It's probably the hardest service program to pass in the world. And uh, there's, I think there's only 200, maybe I'm, I'm estimating here, 250 master sommeliers in the world today. Now, they're restaurant focused. They're not trade focused. So it's a different animal to the master of wine. Um, I find that they don't have nearly the same influence on the global scene outside of hotels and restaurants. In that element, they're at the top of the food chain. But, you know, sadly, they've been plagued by a cheating scandal that hit in October of 2018 where some students were given answers to the tasting portion of the, of the exam. So that came public and that's created a lot of chaos. And I hope they fix it because it doesn't diminish um, 
hitting that bar. I mean, that bar is very hard to achieve. But if you get back into the MWs, I mean, some of these, some of the most influential, the most influential women in the world of especially media and television and education and wine judging today are women. You have Deborah Byberg in uh, Asia. She's the first MW to come out of Asia, even though I believe she's American. And she does groundbreaking uh, work on, uh, she's helping, for instance, like Georgian wines reappear and reemerge to their level of excellence in the global scene. Uh, another, another brilliant woman in Janine uh, Choli. She's the first woman of Asian descent to become an MW. You know, now there's about 131 masters of wine that are female out of 369 from one in 1970. So you see where the trend's going. We're getting towards that equilibrium of 50-50. Yeah. And then you have my friend, Jennifer Simonetti Bryan. Um, I've gotten to know her through LinkedIn. And you know what? I've never met a more humble person in the wine world at that level of wine. Wow. You know, she, she's, she's done terrific work. She's highly influential. You know, she's done countless media appearances, New York Times, NBC, Wine Library TV with Gary Vee. She has her whole training program, Master Wine Online, where she actually coaches people right up to the MW level. Uh, she's got great tutorials and seminars and how to uh, learn information in the wine world because, I mean, wine's extensive. It's, it's, a lot of these courses are pretty grueling when you get into the advanced levels. And... Um, not only that, I mean, she's an author of several books. Uh, just these women are trailblazers, and they're lighting up. They're lighting it up in the wine world, and uh, I'm I'm actually really grateful to have them here because they've really changed the face of wine and opened it up and 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 made it a much more balanced environment. You know, can you imagine living prior to the 19th century if we were to, if you could teleport yourself and myself back with what we know now? two centuries, we'd probably fall out of our chair and go, what kind of society am I living in? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, and it's amazing to think about how it went from, you know, one or two women uh, here, you know, in, in France, uh, northern France to now, like you said, it's almost at an equilibrium with with men. Um, and there's probably not a lot of industries on Earth that can boast of that much advancement. Uh you know, uh, over such a short period of time. Yes, and historically, one of the greatest products the, the world has ever seen. It's got to be right up there with oil. I mean, it's uh, an incredibly <laughs> valuable product. It's, uh, and uh, I mean, there's still work to do and work to cut out, I'm sure, to balance it out. But you're seeing yeah. a whole myriad of women engaged. I mean, I go to wine events now, and there is just a huge number of women that are really intelligent in this field, engaged in it, whether they're sales reps or brokers, they have their own companies, they're in the media arm, uh, they dabble in it in the media side and the event side like myself. Uh, you know, they, they are involved in the education side. And it's, uh, it's great to see because, uh, you know, it's, I look at the world as a big human resource pot. And the more we actually exercise the talents of humanity across all spectrums, regardless of what race, culture, or background, or sexual orientation, or sexuality that you are, the better off society is. Because we're really, we're really maximizing talent when that happens. And it is great to be involved in a field that is definitely moving in that direction. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's the one thing, you know, is it's time for equality to happen. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, uh, I think now at this point that's in right. history, we're finally starting to 
make positive pushes uh, in that in that regard. So I mean, awesome. it's, it's super exciting. <laughs> it is. Well, you know what? Thank you for having me. I think mean, we've covered pretty much everything today. I mean, it's, uh, it's this has been a, a lengthier talk, and it's been a great talk with you. Uh, I'm obviously really passionate about this and really excited for what the wine what wine field holds in the future. Oh yeah, absolutely. It was it was great having you on again. And um, you know, I know you've got your your new website URL, uh, thedrunkengrape.com. That's right. Uh, so uh, so you got all that live. Uh, what other ways can people engage uh, with you on this and find out more about about what we talked about today? And, and, well, I've got uh, my face in general. Yeah, I've got my Facebook page, uh, The Drunken Grape. They can find me yeah. there. They can find me on Facebook directly under Rob Statham. They can also find me on LinkedIn under my direct name. So uh, those are really the platforms I'm uh, most involved with. And I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to answer any questions people may have or to engage in any which way I can help, particularly if you're in the wine, spirits, or beer world. Yeah, awesome, man. And I, again, I appreciate you coming on the show today. Hey, thank you very much, David. Have a great day. It's always a pleasure. All right. Hey, everybody. David here. Do you guys like science fiction? If so, I just released a novel. It's called Hurtling Toward a Home, A Story of Hope. It's set many hundreds of years in the future when Earth just couldn't support us anymore. We thought we had more time. We didn't take it seriously. We didn't listen to what was being said. And now we have to suddenly build ships and figure out a place to go, but where? So we decide to just go everywhere, to just send ships off in every direction that any scientist has ever said could potentially support human life to give us the best chance of survival. We're going to try every planet. So we built ships and loaded supplies and robots on them and shipped them ahead to try and prepare and test the planets uh, to make sure that they were suitable as we were building our fleet to leave for our great exodus from Earth. This particular story follows one ship, the Hope, and one young man, Jonathan, as he's always dreamed of living this life of adventure from what he's seen from old Earth movies and read in novels. And he longs for that type of, of an adventure. He longs to set foot on a planet. And yet, he is not. But after his 16th birthday, he gets sent off on a secret mission and an adventure that he never thought he would ever be able to live. I am so excited to share this journey with you guys. And I thank you guys for checking it out. Again, Hurtling Towards a Home, A Story of Hope by David Calvert.